The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where every week we're bringing you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And folks, we got something that we need to talk about. We are seven months into a national foreclosure moratorium. We are seven months into a national eviction ban. We are now 12 months into state eviction bans, or if they weren't, if they weren't banned, if the evictions weren't banned, they were for all practical purposes impossible since courthouses largely shut down for the first few months following the start of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And what we have seen in the, in the past year is affordable housing becoming more and more and more and more scarce. You want to talk about unintended consequences. This eviction ban, which was for the purpose of keeping people from having to move during a pandemic, has instead made it m- difficult for people to find a place to move to and difficult for them to um, expect that in the future they would have a place to move into. And it has become a problem that is alarming enough and likely to be long-term enough that we decided it was time to devote an entire show to it. Joining me to talk about the bleak outlook for affordable housing is Mr. Jim Shapiro, a property owner, property manager, past president of the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati, and sometime guest host of this very program. He's joining us by phone from his home here in Cincinnati. Jim, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so... All this stuff that we're going to discuss on today's program is stuff that every real estate entrepreneur who is at all aware of how how government actions affect what they do has been talking about for, I don't know, 11 months. And yep. it's, Pretty much. Uh, it's been a... A bumpy, well, everyone listening to this show knows it's been a challenging year for our industry, uh, and and for the and for the people we rent to, who we call customers. You know, they're not. Sometimes people talk about it like we're we don't like our tenants. Our tenants are our renters are our 
customers. And uh, I manage over 400 units, and it's been a very – I've got more than 100 people behind. I just got off the phone with an owner. He's got 14 units, and three of them are behind a combined $12,000. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they're all people who were impacted by COVID, lost their work, lost their jobs, lost their income. And it's been a uh, uh, a bumpy year. But, you know, I, I, I'm optimistic um, that we're going to see things start to change because the, the programs that are, are, are becoming are there the original CARES program, which most of that money is gone. Locally, it's all, I think it's all given out. And the new one is ARP, America Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion. I think $700 million is coming to Ohio for housing and being divided to the counties. And um, this is new money with new uh New rules and regulations. Some of it, the the property owner will be able to apply for directly. Uh, we won't require the residents to do it on their own behalf. We can apply for them, which makes sense. We're the ones who provide the housing, and we're the ones who are facing right now, you know, devastating financial impacts. Uh, and we're the ones who, have the, you know, I have a I have a signed lease. And a history showing, you know, 11 months of non-payment, and the tenant says, yeah, that's right. How much more paperwork do we need? Uh, the government has made some of these hoops that people have to jump through um, tougher and tougher. And, and the new program, I think, is going to maybe relax some of that. There is a lot to unpack here. And we're going to be talking today about uh, how real estate investor type folks are doing with this, uh, how they're dealing with it when they can't deal with it anymore, which is becoming increasingly the case and the effect on the tenants, the effect on the residents and what this is going to mean for certainly our area and probably all areas going forward and we are going to wrap up folks in case you get so depressed like 45 minutes in that you're like oh man i don't even want to know this anymore we are also going to talk about what sorts of things rental property owners should and could be doing to try to turn this around to try to make it uh to try and make it better than it is uh if you have questions or you have stories of your own that you would like to tell, 877-772-9658 would be the number where you could call us live. You can also send emails to askvina at gmail.com and we'll monitor them here in the station. And we will be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. We're talking today about the effects of the eviction moratoriums a year in to the process now. My guest today is Jim Shapiro, who is a rental property owner and also the manager of about 400 rental properties. And Jim, can you just just to give folks some perspective? Can you describe the typical rental property that you're managing? 
Well, I manage all sorts, but you know, the majority in, in our community, uh, the majority of rental housing is low to moderate income. Um, in our cities, higher income people can afford to buy. Uh, but I have houses from, you know, inner city neighborhoods to nice suburbs. And I'm really seeing, I'm seeing impacts of COVID in all of them, but the, the biggest impact of the, you know, the COVID and, and the, I don't even really want to focus on the eviction moratorium as much as I find that frustrating for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, our objective here is, is to support what that objective was, which is keep people housed. And the last thing I want is someone who owes us $8,000 moving out. So the message that I'm encouraging and that I'm encouraging, I'm on the Cincinnati Eviction Avoidance Committee with uh, City Councilman Landsman and representatives from a dozen or two local housing organizations. I'm involved with affordable housing advocates. I'm often bringing a different perspective. And I, today I was on a, a conference call with Felicia and uh, people from LISC, which is a housing-focused nonprofit, a national one. Uh, we want everyone to get the same message. Residents, stay in your home, work with your your property, you know, your landlord, your rental property provider. Uh, help them get the assistance that the government is offering. Keep your kids in their school. Keep your family in your home. You know, the... This is not the time to move. This is the time, you know, the housing providers kept you housed for a year. Work with them now to get them caught up. What? Obviously, for our industry, if, if all these people that are behind thousands of dollars move, you know, suing people like this isn't all that effective. You know, it's a long, slow slog, and, and we don't really want to be doing that. And if we if we can keep them in the home and get them applying and us applying and you know so communications going over if, if they don't take the phone call go over there you know make the effort to show them that you know they're your customer they're the people that we're in business to you know to serve it as as housing providers and we need them you know badly at this point we've we've kept them housed through a bad year uh, we've all had the issues of health and family and friends and impacts of COVID, but now it's just stabilize our neighborhoods. And in Cincinnati, if we don't do that, what we're seeing a lot of is two things. One, owner occupants are buying up houses all over. The resale market here is really hot. And I, I fear that there won't be enough rental housing. There's already a, a rental housing gap in the community. Uh, you know, and owners can say, I don't want to be in this anymore. That'll, that'll they'll make a little money once, but I'd rather keep these properties and keep providing this service and stabilize our neighborhoods. And two is, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's no fun going through losing a property and losing a tenant. So how do we keep everybody housed and, and you know, make the effort, reach out? And I, I said to someone today, I said, we need you, the affordable housing community, saying this also. You know, tell everybody. We need we need the churches saying to their parishioners, stay in your home, work with your housing provider, help them recover from this. Now, the man I just hung up with, he's in New York, and he owns 14 units. And, you know, the $12,000, if we can keep his tenants in, 
you know, he's going to get a big chunk of money, and he's going to be able to do some of the things that we haven't been able to do, like the the two units to share a boiler that didn't work well this year. We didn't have the money to fix it because they're thousands behind, and we had to do something. You know, we had to do something different, and we're probably going to redo it with electric baseboard heat because uh, the boilers are expensive, and, and it's a funny building. No one would put it's two efficiency apartments with one boiler. That's kind of crazy. So uh, tell me why you're concerned that tenants are going to move. Uh, there's all, if if there's all this if there's all this money out there that folks can get, why are you afraid that somebody's just going to pack up and move rather than go get the money and stay where they are? If you owed me ten thousand dollars and you just got reemployed after eight or nine months of you know unemployment, your kids were home from school, you were out of your job, even if your job was available. If you had to stay home with your kids because the child care shut down and the schools shut down, and now you're saying, oh, I finally got a job again, and now i got to catch up $10,000, is it easier to just move? Now, that's the fear. Now, some people are going to start looking and find there's not so many places to move because the market has kind of shifted a little bit. Uh, and other people are going to say, hey, I found a place. He, the new guy wants – he hasn't had rent in, in 10 months. He approved me, and I'm going to move into a fresh, clean house, and I don't have to deal with my other one. One of my residents, uh, she's applied for all the assistance, but Duke turned off her heat in January. So she moved in with her sister. We're hoping um, this is a little duplex on Mansion uh, in a, you know inner-city neighborhood in Cincinnati in Price Hill, uh, $8,500 she's behind. And she applied for everything, but Duke turned off the utilities as so if she had to leave. Uh, there's assistance now. You know, we weren't able to do anything. If I did that, that's called constructive eviction. When Duke does it, you know, it's called, oh, Duke's enforcing their, you know, whatever. They're, they weren't helping us. Uh, this family ended up living on their sister's couch, leaving all their stuff. And so why? So if she applied for assistance, doesn't the assistance include utilities? Can't she get utility assistance too? Like, how is she still eighty nine hundred, eighty five hundred dollars behind and has no money for a heating bill if she applied for this zillions of dollars worth of assistance? Well, the the I mean, there's no good reason except that the agencies and the programs have been horribly behind. One of my residents, um, nice woman. Paid on time right up until um, she was a patient care assistant, three-year job at, UC, at University of Cincinnati Hospital. But they let her go so they could bring on more full nurses. So the patient care assistants got let off. Um, she, in order to get assistance, she started applying. She treated looking for help. But she's a responsible person, like a job. She says she applied for almost 100 jobs. Uh, she needed. She applied for assistance. She needed a birth certificate for her son who was born in California. That took a month to get. She needed someone else needed a Social Security card, but the Social Security office has been closed since last March, and she doesn't have a computer and a printer to go online and do it and print it out. And so she, you know, took her, you know, months to get something that most of us would say is a simple, routine thing. 
she she told me this, a bunch of stories. One of them was at one point she called the community action agency every day for two weeks and left messages. When she finally got through to someone, they said to her, "Oh, we didn't get you know we have so many voicemails we don't even bother listening anymore." So the agencies that are doing this are struggling to keep up with the volume. Remember, they weren't set up to process millions of dollars of federal money a year ago. They were doing their job, and all of a sudden this COVID thing happened, and all this money came, and it all came with a lot of bureaucracy. You know, we're talking federal government and state government. Uh, one of the things they wanted was demographic info. I said, why do they need all this data? And they said, well, we're trying to get demographic about these people. And I thought, well, this isn't the time for that. That's what the census was. This is, this, you know, we, we can't afford to wait while people are going through this stuff over and over. The, the pandemic unemployment assistance was suspended July 30th last year, and it wasn't renewed until March. And I'm not even sure people are getting it now yet as part of the new uh, ARP. So, you know, the federal government set this up. Uh, when they went, you know, people could argue that the 600 a week was too much last year, but it floated our economy. And when they went from 600 to zero for the next seven or eight months, you know, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, and March, you know, that... That kind of set all this in, in motion. Most of my residents were current in September. Now, they paid the July rent, but September things, you know, and a lot of them were getting that PUA. Other ones were approved for it, but the money was gone. Um, if they'd gone from 600 to 300 in September instead of, or in August, instead of 600 to zero, you know, I know people said, oh, people are making more money on unemployment than they made working. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't set that up. I don't support that. But I know when they went from 600 a week to zero, I think that started a spiral, for, especially for housing providers, because we're usually the biggest bill of the month for these people. Whether they're paying 500 or 1,000, we're their biggest bill of the month. So if you can pay six other bills, you know, they're still feeding their families. They were in the house more. They were, it was just, a, it hasn't been a whole lot of fun. <laughs> it, it is, it is, it is interesting to note that September was also the month when the CDC eviction ban came into effect. So we had two things converging at the same time. People who maybe weren't getting as much money per week as they had been for the prior few months and people being actively told that they could not be evicted for not paying their rent if they filled out and signed a piece of paper saying that they were COVID affected and had were trying their best and had paid as much as they could and would be homeless if they left, which is not, it's not a big bar to cross to sign that piece of paper, right? But I hear you saying that it's a huge bar to cross to get this assistance, and this is this is the same story I'm hearing from housing providers all over the country. People apply for it; they are qualified for it by every by every uh, qualification we can find, and they're not getting it for two, three, four months, if if ever. I mean, there's some of them obviously who are still waiting for it. So let's back up and say. 
how are your clients dealing with this? Like, what do you say? The, 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 the lady who's $8,500 behind and yet her stuff is all still in the house and she can't be evicted. And you've got, you've got an owner there who is somehow, I assume, floating a mortgage payment and taxes and insurance and all of that sort of stuff. How, how, how are these people handling this? Well, that owner, uh, his he doesn't have a mortgage, so he's in a little better position. Although he wants to sell the house, he's tired of it. He's tired of, um, you know, what the business has been. He's doing other things in his real estate, uh, and he owning low and moderate income rental properties. He has found is not quite the the fun thing he thought. Uh, so there's a lot of people who are out there, you know, grabbing properties now, and some of them are selling at premium prices. Uh, there's a lot of out-of-state investors and some corporate buyers who are they're stocking up now. Uh, I think what's being harmed the most is the small independent investors, like so many of our members, uh, the mom and pop, 72 percent. Rental housing in America is owned by small owners in their own name. I don't even mean the LLC guy with 10 houses or five houses. I mean individuals. Uh, and those are the people that are kind of getting the raw end of this because people don't appreciate that most of the investors in America are just regular people. They're not corporate buyers. They're not hedge funds. They're, you know, People like you and me that have chosen to invest in our community directly by buying housing and, and providing housing. Um, you know, and, and 40 to 60 percent of Americans are renting all over the country. So it's a, you know, we are we're providing a very essential need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So ha- had this particular client had a mortgage, chances are he would now be. He said he hasn't gotten rent for ten months. Yeah, yeah, he's he'd be in trouble. Yeah, chances are he'd be five months behind in his mortgage at this point because you know what do we all what do we all learn and hear and in normal times is true. Save twenty percent of your rent for reserves. Most small investors, if they if they had managed to save seven eight nine thousand dollars for reserves, which is plenty, when what those reserves are for is turnovers and vacancies and you know. It's going to need a new roof in a couple of years. And and air conditioners and roofs. But he, right, that's a lot. He would have it's burned through all of that, though. He would, he would have burned uh, through every dime of that if he had a mortgage on that house. Right. So there's there's two real you know things there. One, some of the bigger mortgage companies were offering forbearance agreements. And because the banks realized early on they do not want to be where they were in 2009 getting back thousands of houses and foreclosure. So they offered some pretty flexible plans. And the ones who really got hurt the most are the, are, are the kind of investors that were doing, you know, creative finance. They were using, you know, they were borrowing from other investors, from their 401ks and their IRAs. Uh, they were doing private mortgages. Uh, so now you've got two investors. There's the one that loaned you the money to buy the house, buy the property. Is, is not getting paid and you're, you know, you're not paying them and your tenants are living in the house without paying. 
So those folks are getting hurt a lot. And the ones who, you know, kept trying to keep it together and didn't didn't suspend rents, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who just were, were, were going to be harmed by this. And what it's really going to affect is their ability to continue to invest in these, in our city and older properties. Because, you know, these older properties need, you know, I read something this week, uh, 40% of housing in Cincinnati is older than 1939, and 62% is older than 1959. So 60% of our housing is over 60 years old. Um, those things end up needing repairs, and we all know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so those, you know, the ability to keep up with stuff, you know, the, the house that has two, two efficiencies sharing a boiler, we gave them electric space heaters. Because we couldn't do a $6,000 repair when people aren't paying the rent. And one of the other tenants in that building was 4000 behind, but she just got caught up. So I think she got assistance. Now, and this assistance can be pretty significant. I have people who have gotten eight dollars to $18,000 in assistance. So the, the funds are there, and we just have to you know, go through the process and keep people in. We actually just received an email uh, via askvina at gmail.com from Chris. And Chris says, it's time for these government agencies to come into the office and get to work. What Jim said about the Social Security Administration, I have experienced also. This is a huge handicap, especially for low-income tenants who do not have access to a computer, Wi-Fi, scanner, or printer. Maybe open up some of these shut-down malls and get them help centers. (laughs) And... and that's that's a great point. I mean, you know, folks folks who are listening who are, you know, more middle to high income renters, and you know, they maybe if they probably have a home computer, definitely have a computer at their job, and are likely to still have a job because they don't they don't work in the kind of businesses that necessarily have been deeply impacted by COVID. Don't realize that all these little things that they wouldn't even they'd be like well you you can't get a social security card of course you can get a social security card become huge hurdles with tenants who do not have access to that stuff at home and don't either don't have the kind of job where they would have access to computer at work or alternatively um are not working are working right so we've got owners who are um they're 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 struggling i mean you know it's it it's not it's not that the giant owners who own hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of apartment units or thousands of houses around the country are probably feeling this as much but you know you, my mother 82 years old owns all of three rental houses if one of those doesn't pay that deeply impacts, I mean, she's on social security other than these three little rental houses. She's on social security. She gets $1,200 a month or something. And when even one of them doesn't pay, she's literally at the point of saying, well, you know, we, I, I'd like to get a roast to make for dinner, but I can't. I've got to get something cheaper, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's that sort of impact because, you know, rental properties have more, expenses than just the mortgage and as you stated many 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 small investors even if they could have taken advantage of the 
federal foreclosure moratorium did not get to because they don't have federally backed mortgages. You know, you're not going to you're not going to not pay your college buddy who loaned you sixty thousand dollars to buy a house because he didn't have any place else to put it and you would give him a good return. You're not going to tell him, well, sorry, I'm not getting my rent. I guess you're out of luck, my friend <laughs> from college. Um, so th- there's, I, I don't know, I, th- I feel like there's a there's a thought out there in the public, in amongst people who don't actually own rental property or know anyone who does, that landlords want to get paid because they're greedy and they want to get paid, and that's not it. It's that it costs money to do all of this stuff and if we don't get the money it's not that we don't get the money it's not that we're not eating caviar this week it's that we can't pay for the repairs maintenance taxes insurance mortgage payment on the property which means ultimately we either go into foreclosure which deprives the city of a rental house at least temporarily or we have to make a decision that we don't want to make. We didn't set out to make, but I know that a lot of your clients have made, which is, well, there's a bunch of homeowners out here willing to pay me a crazy amount of money for this house, so I'm going to put it on the market and sell it to a homeowner. How, how many how many calls like that do you get every month where a client calls and says, look, when that thing goes vacant, we're just going to fix it up and put it on the market and some homeowner will come give me a bunch of money for it? We've had probably two dozen properties convert in the last year, year and a half from owner to rental. You know, our, our friend had the three, three over on West 8th. She sold them all, made a nice profit, and then the buyer fixed them all up and resold them all within two months. Another one in, in Walnut Hills, another one, uh, Forest Park, we sold something. You know, the, the seller sold it for 105. We had five offers. Uh, they came in rehab it, and in two months it was resold for 155 to an owner occupant. Where I think we're seeing a couple of the impacts of this is, is it's not as much in the, although it's also in the lower end neighborhoods, but in the medium to upper end neighborhoods, uh, upper end, you know, those were rentals only after the foreclosure crisis. Most of them sold since then. Everything I used to manage in, uh, Westchester and Mason, all but one are, are sold to owners five years ago. But now it's, it's, it's middle level neighborhoods. It's Forest Park. It's uh, Mount Healthy that are, are selling in the 120 to 175 range and owners are buying them. And uh, even, you know, a duplex on Sunset and Price Hill, which would not be where you'd expect to see owner occupant. You know, a family bought, and the two different generations are going to share this duplex. And and that's what I'm seeing a lot of is the the areas where it was still possible to get affordable rentals here and around the country. Homeowners are getting so desperate to find a property that they're willing to buy a formal rental property in an area that maybe isn't their ideal area, but they can afford. And they're willing to fix them up too. Like you don't even have to necessarily like make them perfect to get uh, owners to buy those properties. I I've sold a number of my former former affordable rental properties over the last year, uh, including a couple in uh, Price Hill, which for reference for folks who are not from the area is it was kind of the 
like when people said, where are the re- where's the really affordable housing in Cincinnati? Price Hill was one of the first names that came up. And also one in uh, Riverside, which is another neighborhood like that, that yeah, five years ago there would not have been a homeowner buyer for that property. But thanks to the housing shortage, there are now homeowner buyers for those properties. And we need to take a quick break. I do want to invite uh, listeners with questions, comments, stories of their own to either email them to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Or just give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Jim Shapiro, and we're talking about, now that we're a year in, what sorts of affects the eviction bans and a bunch of other stuff that has happened all at once is having on affordable housing. And Jim, I just got a an email from uh, the Chamberlains that says another thing that is causing people to sell houses is COVID itself. I have been personally affected and I'm looking to sell even my performing rental to alleviate financial pressures in other areas, they make good cash flow, but I need a lump sum now. So all of this stuff is converging. Like, you know, we've got, we've got business people who signed contracts with other adult human beings that they had no reason to think that the government was going to come in and say, well, one of you still has to do what you said you were going to do, but not the other one. We've got a super hot housing market. We've got uh, the small housing providers that you mentioned own 72% of the rental properties in the United States who are also dealing with layoffs and COVID and you know all the same thing that everybody is dealing with. And the net result of this looks like it is turning toward lots of properties that have been rentals for a long time are now no longer rentals and they probably won't come back as such. I don't I don't see the homeowners that are buying these rentals selling them in the next couple of years back to housing providers at least not anything like the price that they paid for them. So in the in the long run, what do you think this does to affordable housing in cities across the country? Well, I, I don't know if Bill Curtis was speaking across the country. I certainly see in Cincinnati, as all these houses convert, we really just need, we need more housing, and we need more housing at every level, not just the affordable level. Although in the city of Cincinnati, you know, they talk about there's a gap in affordability of twenty-eight to forty thousand units, but then. The, some of the people involved with that, I don't feel like they're really communicating the full story. Uh, if someone's in a house that they can't quite afford, it's not that we need 28,000 new properties. We need People need more income. I mean, we've got the basic issues of poverty and uh, the, the cost of operating housing isn't going down. The cost of everything is going up. So looking at, you know, bigger issues there, but one of the things I see happening, um, I, I feel like the affordable housing community 
is, you know, there's different levels in that. They're, they don't recognize that all of us little landlords, rental property owners, the 72% are, are the biggest provider of housing. Um, you know, they're looking at how do they get the people that are applying for low-income tax credits to build new housing. Uh, there's an initiative in Cincinnati for a, a $50 million a year affordable housing trust fund. And I think it's a, you know, not a very uh, good good legislation. Uh, it'll have lots of lots of strings attached. If you agree to get help from them, you can't evict tenants. You can't raise rents. You have to agree to keep to put deed restrictions that you'll never, you'll always keep the house a low income rental. That doesn't make any sense. That's going to stifle neighborhoods from improving over time. Uh, there's a lot of increased regulation on our industry. Rental registration programs, uh, mandatory inspections, uh, telling us how we what we can do to screen. We can't. They want no credit checks. They want no background checks. They want no. You're not supposed to pay attention to criminal background. So there's a lot of different factors that we are are facing in this business, and we provide housing to half of America. Uh, so there's, you know the. The people that are trying to get the big money for building new housing, they don't appreciate that it's people like you and me that are housing hundreds of hundreds of, of regular people in in neighborhoods. We're not building projects. We're not building developments. Uh, we're, we're in the neighborhoods that are around for 100 years. And if we can't get help and keep people in the houses and help us support fixing up these older houses, they're going to sell to owner occupants, uh, which is good for the owner occupants, but not so great for the rental market. Because the the bottom line is one of the reasons that rent is the biggest bill. I mean, rents your rent or your house payment is everybody's biggest bill. Right. It's it's my biggest bill. I mean, it's you know everybody's got it, the, the the FHA says thirty three percent of your income is affordable for uh, housing, but when there is less housing, the remaining housing gets more expensive. It's it's supply and demand. So if you if you lose, I mean, between you and I, we we already know of two dozen people who have sold a, a rental house and it has turned into a non-rental house. You got twenty four less houses. You don't have twenty four less tenants. You don't have 24 nope. less people looking for, for them. So now the houses I have left, people are willing to pay more for them. And given, you know, a year's worth of lost rent, I'm willing to let them pay more for them. But now you've literally squeezed people out of the market. Well, the other thing that's happened is some of these houses really do need bigger investment. And so some of the investors, uh, especially not local ones, they're coming in and they're putting – they're buying a house for forty, and they're spending fifty on it, or sixty on it, and then they're re-renting it for fifteen hundred. You know, there's a house I'm dealing with on Whitler Street. Uh, it used to be a seven hundred dollar rental, and the owners have now put a hundred thousand dollars into it, and now it's you know they were trying to rent it for sixteen hundred, and now they're trying to sell it for two hundred because they found they couldn't really get sixteen hundred. Another client, you know, bought a a pretty rundown house in Evanston and uh, fixed it up really nice and rented it for fourteen ninety five. 
So that went from being a low and moderate income affordable rental for a family to being uh, a di- now okay here's the scary part of that the family that rented it for 1495 owns a million dollar house in Hyde Park and they moved into this rental house so they could renovate their Hyde Park house and he's a pretty high income guy in finance and he was two months behind in rent because his customers aren't paying him and when I spoke to the wife you know it was the most embarrassing thing in the life She's behind on rent. She's behind on water. She's behind on payment to three private school tuition because her children are all in private schools. And they've never been in this position in their life. You know, they started a rehab that they wish they hadn't started and COVID hit. But that someone at that level has been impacted. Uh, you know, that's where I, I see it's not just the lowest. It's kind of starting to impact, percolate through the economy in other ways. Uh, And they're going to sell some other assets, but they've never been this way in their life. So they're they're going to recover. But that, and he said, I fell behind on this because I kept paying my workers even though I wasn't getting paid, and now I'm and now I'm facing the decision of not paying my staff in order to pay my family expenses, including his rent. And mortgage and the rehab that well they've now suspended the rehab on their house. So, I hope listeners have gotten the point that this is a much 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 more complicated situation than you see in the media. You know, it, it, it's these evil landlords. They want to throw people out of their houses in the middle of COVID just because of the money. Um, they they're not accepting people's rent even when they want to pay it. Also not true. Um, why are, why, what are they crying about? There's all this you know, $700 million in aid coming, except it's very, very hard for people to get. There's a lot of tentacles to this. And when you start, when you start looking at it, not at the level of the media who doesn't bother to dig in or, at the level of the people before properties folks who, I mean, I agree people before properties. That's why when I make an agreement with another human being, I expect them to keep it because I'm a person and it's not about the property. It's about the contract we signed. What can rental property owners do to take action on this? Like, what do you, what do you think the big picture is here for what we all as an industry have to do going forward? I think we have to be visible and vocal in the community. We need to speak to our elected officials about the role we play and that we are, uh, we're housing half the population. And if you don't work with us, what you're going to get are two things. One, you're going to get the big corporate hedge fund buyers. There's three or four that I know in Cincinnati that now own four or 5,000 rental units. They become the biggest housing, um, rental housing providers. And I know as a, as a property manager, when I call for a reference, I never get a call back. When I talk to the tenants, uh, they say, oh, they're, they're unresponsive. They don't return our calls. They don't fix things. But they're backed by some really big money, and they're buying up houses. Uh, one, one company called me last January before the start of COVID and said, We've got $150 million we're looking to spend on single-family housing in Cincinnati. 
We'll buy anything you have. I know that COVID slowed them down, but they bought 189 houses uh, since then, according to the county. And that's just the one county. And so on the one hand, you've got the corporatization. Uh, I think these are these are probably backed by hedge funds. And, you know, if they they're not they're not part of our community. They don't care about our community. The other is the owner occupants are going to buy and we're going to squeeze the we're going to squeeze the lowest end out of the market. I don't know where all these people are going to go. And who- well, one woman I, I rented to and her owner sold the house. And she was a great tenant, paid her rent, you know, A-plus references. She moved to another house. That owner sold the house. She's now living in a house she doesn't really like. But in, in three months, she couldn't find a place. And this is a good tenant with great payment history. Uh, and I, you know, I'm renting her her third house now in six months. So- and it took her a lot. And she didn't want to move to the one on West Liberty. It was the only thing she could find. So, Jim, we are just about out of time. You started that thought by saying we need to be visible and tell our stories to whom? To city government, to your friends and family, so they understand what it is we do. We provide housing to half the population. To community organizations, you know, wherever you can. Really, the local government is the biggest one because they're hearing a lot from the affordable housing community. Uh, and I often say many of those people, uh, every Friday they get a paycheck, whether the tenants pay the rent or not. Uh, it, it's those of us who really are dependent on this money that have a lot at stake. We're putting our own future, our family's future, our children's future, uh, economic future in our housing uh, and we should get support. We should, and we want to see that continue. We want to see these houses remain rental houses. Uh, the, the community should look how to support uh, the the housing providers. And it's uh, I've, I've had a lot of conversations. I'm on these community these community groups now, and and they are we're making this point to them. If you're involved with ARIA and you're not active in the community, ARIA should start some sort of a community uh, affairs program. Uh, we work closely with the Apartment Association locally. We don't always have 100% overlap, but our, our interests are, there's a lot of overlap there, and they bring some good uh, value and some credibility uh, because all the city officials know the Apartment Association. They don't all know the small housing providers. The woman I met with today at LISC, I don't even remember what LISC stands for. It's a national housing services organization. She acknowledged that no one really pays attention to the small providers, and she didn't realize how big we were. So, we all hear about the problem properties. They, quote-unquote, slumlords, the out-of-state landlords who buy stuff and don't do anything. We all hear about the, the big organizations uh, but, it's, but those of us in the middle are really missed here, and we're doing a good job. If 60% of the housing, 40 to 60% of the rental, housing is rental in our cities, and that's a national average, most of it's not a problem. You know, most of it doesn't need city inspections and registrations. And in North College Hill, $150 per unit per year. 
to register, just to have your name on a mail on a list with a phone number so they can call you if your grass is tall. And Jim, if you own six properties, that's nine hundred a year. Over ten years, that's nine thousand dollars. Just to have your name on a mailing list. And that's, that and that's the topic for another show because we are out of time. All Jim, right. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. And we'll thank be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.